Hello. Hello. And welcome to a new episode of the Plants and Pipettes podcast. <laughs> Were you trying to read and talk at the same time? Yeah, I was trying to press there? on a button and the button didn't react here what I was doing. And uh, Yoram so. and I are doing this like record, remote recording thing. So I thought like maybe there was a little pause in the... No. No, reception no. but no no it was just a brain pause yeah it was a brain brain freeze yeah what have you been up to you've had a busy weekend huh? yeah i had a very busy weekend um this time it was my time to go on a retreat you went um a while ago now a few weeks ago two weeks mm. three four i don't know a couple of weeks ago and i went now with doro on her work retreat uh, my with doro is my wife and um, because we're having a young baby that predominantly feeds on my wife um <laughs> super gross baby's a gross man <laughs> yeah babies are gross um i was coming along as a babysitter um the baby couldn't stay with me here so i had to come along um and it was actually quite nice it was a really we went just to brandenburg not too far away from berlin which is i think the best way to do a retreat because anyway you're sitting in a room to have meetings and um you don't have to travel six hours to then have meetings you just have to be far enough away from home that people don't go home in the evening um, that's the perfect distance, and that's what we did, and it was really nice. And the one thing I, I took also away—you didn't have to actually be in those meetings as well, so that helps. Yeah, I mean, I was mostly going for walks with the baby, um, but in between, I got little insights in the way they do their workshops. It's a design company, and um, they had some interesting workshops. They discussed uh, diversity in the company. They discussed sustainability as a company, um, and it was quite interesting to see that um, because, as it already is uh the company is quite diverse but still they looked at the things where they could be better which i found very refreshing um coming from a place where you have to fight for every little bit of justification of diversity where just um lacking a y chromosome is already considered something strange and has to be discussed at length and it was quite nice to be in a place where this was already settled and they could look more in like um uh, diversity in terms of origin from different cultural backgrounds from different religious backgrounds from different um, class backgrounds and so on so um, that I was mean, quite I've fun actually, I've been interviewing for a lot of jobs recently and I'm asking um, the people who are interviewing them because I mean I think you should also interview your potential bosses while they interview you to make sure they're not a psychopath yeah. but I've been often asking my bosses about like what they think about diversity and for me, like, I mean, it's an important topic generally because I've, I've seen like, I mean, I just, I really strongly believe in it, but it's also really interesting as kind of a litmus test to see how different bosses respond. So like, sometimes they'll just be like completely like, oh, oh, I don't know. And like pass the like question off to the woman at the table yeah. or like they'll only answer about like female diversity because obviously like I'm only diverse as a female, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white Caucasian, like. Um, so they'll only answer those questions and not answer any of the other questions, which I'm also really curious about. So it's, it's quite like, I think it's a really interesting, yeah, really litmus test to see to see about different bosses and their opinions. Yeah, yeah. And that's um, that was really fun to see like a completely different industry doing an offsite or a retreat um, because I've only been on scientific retreats before. Um, so yeah, I had a pretty good time there, although I walked so much. Like <laughs> the baby is only sleeping when I carry him, and so I was carrying him through the, the forests. Um, and I mean, my watch was very happy with the level of activity that I had, so that was good. But apart from that, like yeah, I'm I was quite tired. I still am quite tired. Um, 
but yeah, I, it was good. Um, have you done something I, fun since last time? It's only been a week since we recorded. I think like I mostly stayed indoors this weekend. I can't even remember what I did yesterday. What did I do yesterday, Yoram? Did I go outside? Uh, I did. I visited another baby. Ah, uh, yeah. That baby might be as cute or cuter than your baby. No, Ooh, that's, words. that's impossible. Um, so I may have got my friend has a. I'm not going to mention her name because she's quite private. I think it's fair. She has a dog and a baby, so I may have got the dog and the baby matching Halloween outfits. <laughs> like, I'm just putting it out there. They're both going to be dressed like bats this Halloween. <laughs> that's I really think, cool. Um, I haven't thought I about have Halloween co- costumes yet. Yeah, I, I just I guess we should discuss this. It's getting quite um, close, and obviously your offspring is going to need to be sporting some sort of, like, he could just go as Jonah, and you could dress up as a whale, and then it would be Jonah and a whale, and that like that does itself, you know, like <laughs> done. That is, <laughs> you could that carry him on his body and be a little whale. That's a very good idea. Yeah, I I had a like on my mental to do list. There was um, think about cool parent baby um, costumes. But I didn't mm-hmm. actually go through with it yet. Um, I just have it I've in my mind. I've seen some pretty cute stuff online, honestly. Yeah, I mean, there's all these people that always go way overboard or extremely uh, intensive. And in Germany, Halloween is just not a real thing. Um, so we mostly do it for the fun of it. And it can still be... Um, like yeah, the thing, like, I, I understand, like, my parents were quite against, like, this over globalization where Australian culture like growing up in Australia Australian culture stops ex- existing and you can make any joke about whether there is Australian culture as far as what they were talking about um, but where that stopped existing is because there's just like too much like US influence as far as movies and, and pop culture so they were like very against this like globalization and Americanization of everything so they were not pretty, um, particularly pro Halloween but like dressing up it's always good yeah i think that's what i like about it as well it's a quite consumer event here um but fancy dress fancy dress yeah <laughs> we're so, also gonna have one at the the institute that's gonna be like a small hmm. halloween party um i'm gonna be a raven hmm. i have decided i think it's like sufficiently scary because as you know ravens are the most terrifying animals yes we talked bar, about that bar none it's like ravens. I think octopus is really high on my list now, but I also find octopus really tasty and really cute. So, like, I consider them not as much of a threat. But and like, a bit more challenging as a costume. I've been an octopus already, actually. So that's like okay. I've I went. I don't know. I think we had a um a water theme once for Halloween. So actually, my family used to do um Halloween, um not for Halloween for Christmas because I don't know why. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> because dress up but also being like opposing uh, very opposing yeah people. I think they're like often also opposing actual Halloween I think my family just generally likes to dress up um, uh, we had some like Tots and Vickers ones we had like yeah various themes throughout the um, the years but one of them was water themed and I went as an octopus's garden so like I had like a floral dress on but then I just had like an octopus sitting on my head like <laughs> kind of tending and that was like that was very fun <laughs> I'm to find those photos. Maybe I can put them on the on the show notes or on Insta uh, for <sighs> for Halloween some throwbacks. Yeah, I never did so much Halloween um, as a child because yeah, um, it's only been a thing here for the last couple of years, and even then, it's not not nothing big really. Like yeah, sometimes you have a party at a friend's house, and this is when I dress up, but we don't really go out trick or treating. There's not many people coming around. I think since I moved here. I have- 
we had like i think once or twice i had some children here i usually buy candy knowing that there won't be children and then i eat all the candy later <laughs> on and every year i it's get a little fatter e. yeah all right shall we do science we should do science let's let's do a little bit of science also it's your time to do a paper yeah so i don't have to do any work <laughs> <laughs> it's the paper of the week it's my paper this week um and I have to say, this is um, it's a shorter story, uh, but I think there are cool, uh, a couple of interesting concepts that we can d- discuss along the way. So the paper is called Overexpression of CA1 PACE or CA1 PACE um, decreases, uh, de- decreases Rubisco abundance and grain yield in wheat. Um, uh, this is a paper from Anna Carla Lobo, is the first author from the lab of Elisabete Carmo Silva. And I like this paper. It's a carbonic anhydrase. Is that a carbonic anhydrase? Um, r- no, CAP1As no. is not a carbonic C-A-P. anhydrase. Ah, not CAH. Okay. No, no, it's. Um, so we can, t- so the CA1PAs. I think in the title it's all written in lowercase because it's the mutant. Um, but I just derailed you, didn't I? <laughs> a little bit. But I just want to explain why I struggle so much in pronouncing this because it's uh, spelled that it has first of all a number in the middle of the title. It was all spelled lowercase, but it, later in the text it's C A one P in capital letters and then A's in lowercase. So I guess it's C A one P A's uh, instead of C A one P's. Is it a phosphatase? Is it a phosphatase? Um, no, it's a yeah, it's a phosphatase of two carboxy D arabinitol one phosphate phosphatase. Uh, wow. So it's um, it's so a complicated molecule. Arabinitol one phosphatase. Phosphatase, uh, phosphate. Okay. Phosphatase. Yeah, it's a two. It's a full name, <laughs> just to iterate. <laughs> two carboxy D arabinitol arabinitol one phosphate phosphatase. In short, CA one PAs. So the story here is uh, we can talk about what this molecule actually does uh, a little bit later but this is um, a bit uh, uh, a part of the infamous Rubisco research we talked a little bit about that on the blog already about what Rubisco does and maybe you want to fill in the listeners about the function of Rubisco <laughs> Rubisco every <laughs> now and then you take some ruby tea and fix it in with CO2 okay so Rubisco is part of the carbon benzene cycle it's important for the first step of fixing carbon dioxide to make it into an organic carbon compound it's a little bit shit it's job so it's job is to take carbon dioxide and every now and then as the sun goes oxygen jumps in and that leads to photorespiration and photorespiration is unideal because not only do you fail at picking up carbon but you also produce a toxic byproduct which you have to detoxify and that wastes a whole lot of energy a whole lot of time that nobody's got and also ends with release of fixed carbon so rubisco is great it's the most abundant protein on earth we need it to survive everybody uses it but it's also a little bit shit yeah, um, exactly. And in this case, um, this paper is not talking about photorespiration, which is one of the major things that people usually try to manipulate in some way or another because it's a wasteful process. Um, and if we would get rid of it, um, the idea is that it would increase photosynthetic efficiency because then um, all of the activity goes just to fixing carbon and which then translate to biomass, be it grains or leaves or whatever we harvest from, from the plant. Um, 
but in this paper, however, they talk about a different aspect of Rubisco, um, which are Rubisco inhibitors. So sometimes there are other molecules that can be part also of the metabolic reactions happening around Rubisco that can in actually inhibit the protein. And um, then there's an entire zoo of uh, so inhibitor um, destroying in enzymes that then again make sure that the that uh, Rubisco is not blocked from uh, performing its activity. And uh, one of these inhibitors is the CA1P, um, which is, um, I think it is uh, formed during... Um, um, yeah, during its process, and then there is the the phosphatase that can detoxify it, that can destroy this this pro, um, uh, molecule, and then release Rubisco unharmed, and then it can continue doing its work. And so the, the phosphatase is basically just like modifying the like yeah. structure somehow. In it. Yeah, it's for. I, mean, I, I get that it's removing the the phosphate usually, but um. But that changes its structure and that it's makes it not fit anymore. It's it release. Okay. Or it's changing something about the activity. Okay. It's changing the structure is a thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so there is this, uh, this gene um, for this CA1PAs already exists in plants. And uh, now the idea was uh, in this research paper that if we could just overexpress this gene, then um, there is more if, uh, activity to re remove this uh, blocking molecule, the CA1P, mm -hmm. and therefore there should be more active Rubisco, and therefore there should be overall more carbon fixation, therefore bigger growth and more biomass. That was sort of the idea behind it. Um, the title, Tell me, um, the title already gives it away a little bit, um, is that it didn't work. Um, What's the title again? <laughs> the title is Overexpression of CA1PAs Decreases Rubisco Abundance in Grain Yield oh in Wheat. Oh no! It had the opposite effect. It had the opposite effect. Um, and yeah, so they the, the experiments that they did was pretty straightforward. They overexpressed this uh, CA1PAs and they got 30-fold increase um, of the, the protein. So the overexpression worked really well. Um, and they could also show that it act actually decreased um, the CA1P um, uh, amounts, so mm -hmm. it's it worked. So they could they could see that the protein is there, anise is active, it's doing its job at the right place. Mm -hmm. But they could also see that Rubisco was reduced at the same time, um, and overall, then that had then downstream effects of uh, of um, affecting the the yield in this case in wheat, where they did the entire experiment. Um, so they reduced the actual amount of Rubisco, not even just its activity, but the amount of Rubisco yeah. in the end. Did they have any answer for why this was happening? No, they um, they don't. That's uh, the, the interesting part about the paper, that they speculated a little bit about uh, what could have happened. And it seems that this inhibition of Rubisco is actually a regulatory function. And it's not understood yet why the plant would want to shut down parts of its Rubisco pools, um, uh, probably... It's linked to other metabolic processes, so it could be that it's um, linkage there that it could oversaturate downstream processes, um, mm -hmm. be it of the replenishing of some some uh, cofactors and so on and so on, and therefore that the, the pool is controlled. And then if suddenly this inhibitor can't control the pool anymore, it's uh, which is what I'm saying now. It's like it's all hypothetical. They they couldn't really look into this now, um, but opened up all of these questions. Um, 
it's, it's possible that when the inhibitor can't block the pool of rubisco or control it anymore, then the plant has to do other things to control, the, to make sure that there's not too much rubisco active there. And then it starts degrading rubisco and probably the synthesis and degradation of rubisco is a less dynamic process than um, having this inhibitor there and removing the inhibitor mm-hmm. when, when necessary. And that um, might be a reason why it led to this decrease in... Um, in Rubisco levels there. And it's also like the paper is quite short because of that. Um, because, yeah, they, they sort of went, they, they, they tried it and they saw the opposite effect and they couldn't really um, explain uh, ver- um, easily why that happened because it's such a complex network of things interacting mm-hmm. there. So the discussion part is actually quite long and interesting um, where they think about like the different aspects of uh, Rubisco activity and synthesis and so on. Can I, can I make a little mm-hmm. comment here? Like, I mean, so this is actually one of the, the really common um, themes of a lot of work that's been happening recently to try to manipulate photosynthesis and basically to try to improve photosynthesis. It's quite common that you see papers where people try to overexpress something. Um, the general idea being if you increase certain proteins or certain protein complexes, you will therefore make photosynthesis basically faster or more efficient. And it's quite common that they try to overexpress them and either they don't get overexpression, they don't know why, or they get overexpression and they also get overexpression of some other things and maybe it's good but they don't know why, or they actually don't ever overexpress something and they end up with kind of the opposite effect. So something yeah. downstream, like in this case, goes wrong or yeah, the protein itself turns something else off. Um, and this is really common. And it's actually really a nice thing to see that this paper gets published because it's really important for other scientists to know going forward. But we have this really strong bias, not just in our field, but basically like in all scientific fields, that often if a result is not seen as positive, so it doesn't like get the desired expectation. And I'm saying that in air quotes, because yeah. like obviously you should never have like an aim like this so so boldly to get something but often if you don't have a positive result you don't get published and this just means that a lot of scientists are wasting a lot of time doing the same research wasting public funding and making the same mistakes over and over again because they just don't know what other people have done so absolutely yeah, it's really it's really great to see this out there that's why also that's why this paper struck my attention because it um yeah it's it's not a success story in the simplest way of understanding success there they 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 set up a goal and they tried and it didn't work out the way they thought but still they according like they still did good scientific work because they followed the scientific practice of having a, a hypothesis and then proving it wrong or confirming it and then publishing the results and absolutely what you say it's really cool that this got published and what it also got me thinking is the more general idea of um, whether or not photosynthetic research, um, like w- how much room there's still left to improve it. Like I've seen my fair share of um, Rubisco research uh, in the past. And the idea that it always comes back to is that during evolution, it, the, this photosynthetic uh, machinery from the light harvesting to the carbon fixation is 
pretty well tuned to the respective plant so far. Like um, we talked about this, or I think also in the in the in the blogs uh, uh, in the post that we wrote about this, um, that Rubisco can be very um, efficient, uh, or a very very fast, but not very accurate, and then um, more often taking the wrong. Um, the wrong metabolite and then have do more photorespiration in that case or it can be very precise in what it's doing but then be rather slow at it um, and researchers try to push it to this like best point where it's very fast and very accurate at what it's doing um, but so far it's hard like the, the improvements are very small um, if at all present um, with yeah but there's I mean so that's true that this idea, especially with Rubisco, of a trade-off between like, yeah, this this catalytic rate and the actual yeah accuracy of what it hits, um, carbon dioxide or oxygen. But there are lots of different aspects of photosynthesis, and there have also been some yep. some quite a few positive stories come out. So there was a paper in Science. I don't know if we did it on the podcast actually. I think I did. Yeah. That was a bypass for photorespiration. There's some um, recent work from Christine Ryan's group that is trying to overexpress um, the cytochrome B6F. So it's one of the complexes which is involved in the linear electron transports, so like in the thylakoid membranes, and this seems to have had positive effects. So there does seem to be like moving forward. I think more what it's showing us is not that like it's not possible to do stuff it's showing us you know nothing like yeah. so far we have just like there's such complex regulation and of course there is because if you do photosynthesis wrong you really blow things up like you're dealing with electrons electrons are dangerous like if you if you do things in the wrong way you're going to like kill yourself so I think we just like this is why these these studies are so important like we need to know more about the study and especially these feedback responses so when you change something there's regulation on other levels going backward like up and downwards in in these kind of cascades I think it's yeah yeah it's kind of cool yeah yeah uh, yeah I guess that's a good way to put it it's just uh, papers like this and other research around Rubisco shows us how fine-tuned and hard to understand these networks of interaction are um, and how much more we can learn there and as an aside, I've also seen a talk by Elisabetta, actually. Um, oh. And she's, yeah, she does really cool work. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to diminish anything in the work. I think it's it's really... No, 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 no. I mean, it's it's generally the thing of like, this is like, would be seen as a negative result if your aim is to make more crop. It didn't it didn't work. There wasn't more seed. There wasn't bigger plants. So in yeah. that way... But on the other hand, we well. opened like this whole new idea of uh, regulatory inhibitors um, there. With, before, it was the idea that these things are just bad. They just exist ex yeah, as, a, as an unfortunate side product of some of the metabolite, uh, metabolize, uh, metabolites that are turned over. And yeah, and if like this inhibited Rubisco itself, it actually has some purpose, even if it's evolutionarily by accident that it's got a purpose, but now it's it's somehow making a feedback to make more Rubisco or something like that. Yeah, and I can very well imagine that um, soon we'll see some more light on, on this part of Rubisco regulation. Um, now, now looking into why these inhibitors are necessary and then maybe through that like by understanding this more um, maybe it's best to like slightly reduce the amount of inhibitors and not like here where they try to go for just a very efficient complete uh, destruction of the inhibitors um, mm. maybe when we understand this better an option could be to just gradually decrease them or maybe only decrease them in certain times of day or in certain um, mm -hmm. conditions 
Yeah, and we're gradually getting the tools as well to be able to do that stuff in a much more precise way. I mean, I guess they use the standard overexpression, which is like shove a 35S promoter, so put it, put the, the strongest promoter we know in front of it and see if we can get as much as possible. But now we're getting much more knowledge about different kinds of promoter and conditional promoters, like only in cell types, only at types of day, as your arm just said, like inducible promoters. So this can also be done much more carefully than it could be like 10, 10 years ago or so. Yeah. Okay, um, so yeah, that was my paper. A little bit more, like the actual story was a bit shorter, but I think um, it's an interesting uh, uh, part of research, uh, which brings us, us now to your favorite plant. My favorite plant. Yeah, so I was quite lazy this time in my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm um, never lazy. I, uh, <laughs> I have no sympathy for that because I'm always uh, hardworking. Yoram <laughs> uh, and I went to the Berlin Botanical Garden a couple of weekends ago um, with yeah, Doro and his little baby. Um, and I always get excited in the botanical gardens when we go indoor in, in the glasshouse section and I find the Australian plants. So they don't have many, but they've got like a kangaroo paw and they've got a couple of eucalyptus trees, um, some tea trees. And they also have wattle and wattle is my plant of the day. It's golden wattle, acacia picantha, picanatha actually. Uh -huh. And I love it. Um, if you haven't seen wattle before, you pr should probably um, Google it. They basically look like little tiny pom-poms. Um, the flowers are just these little fuzzy balls with pollen all over them. <laughs> um, uh, the, the leaves are, as you would expect with Australian leaves, they're quite hostile. Um, not like spiky so much, although some, some can have spikes, but more just like this long, thin, kind of grayish green, like really hardy, like thick and covered in, in cuticles because it's hot, it's dry. They don't want to give up water and they don't need to like be green and attract any more sunlight because there's, there's a ton of sun in Australia. Um, so yeah, this is originally from Australia, this species. Um, actually, Golden Wattle is our national floral emblem, which is one of the reasons I chose it. Um, and for me, wattle or various wattle species are, they make a kind of um, perfume, which is basically my favorite perfume in the world, um, mm. up there with the butterfly bush. Um, it reminds me of home. It reminds me of my childhood. We had a huge um, wattle growing in the back yard when I was a kid and my sister and I used to pick it. Actually, my sister and I used to play a game, like a make-believe game where we were different characters. And I'm pretty sure the family name was wattle. <laughs> I think like, all of the children, like we, we played different characters and they all had flower names. My main character was called Violet, but I'm pretty sure they were the Wattle sisters. Anyway, that's a different <laughs> issue. Um, yeah, so it's, as I said, it's a symbol of Australia um, because apparently it's, there's a, there's a, there's a ton of um, Wattle, there's a ton of acacias in Australia. So apparently it's a symbol of like unity. I think there's like 600 or something Wattle acacia species. Um, so acacia, sorry, is the genus species in Australia, but it's also really resilient. So um, it can withstand all of the harsh crap that Australia throws at it, droughts and winds and bushfires. Um, and it also has this ability to re-sprout after fire. Um, so it's kind of cool. Uh, it's now kind of spread all over the world. It's found South Africa, Tanzania, Italy, Portugal, India, Sardinia, everywhere, basically, um, because it's used to like make perfume. As I said, the smell is really beautiful. It's um, used for tannins, mm -hmm. um, so these metabolites. 
um, and it has a gum which can be used uh, like gum Arabic, which is like used for um, printing and painting in the food industry. So it's kind of this um, got this this kind of sappy stuff that that has quite some uses. Um, you guys probably know it as mimosa. I think this is the most common. Like sometimes you can buy mimosa in this in yeah. the, um, flower market, and this is basically a wattle species. Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, now looking um, at the the golden wattle on um, image search, they the I know this is a different black wattle. Black wattle has leaves that sl uh, slightly resemble um, mimosa leaves. Mm -hmm. Could be. Yeah, I mean if they're related. Ah, I see what you mean, like the the touch me not mimosa. Yeah, yeah ah, it's a different kind mm -hmm. of mimosa. Yeah, it it looks the, the, the some of the wattles you're right. They look like the the touch me not plant. Um, that's true. Yeah. Yeah good point um yeah other facts about it in australia we have a national wattle day it's not a national holiday though it's just like a day like a saint day and i, I know this is actually being put forward as one of the alternatives for the current australia day which is on a terrible date because it represents the invasion of australia by the british um but it's in september which is cold and wet in in australia so it's not ideal but anyway the other um popular cultural reference to wattle that um, is given to me by Wikipedia is that Monty Python referred to it in their Bruce sketch um, <laughs> in the 70s and um, there's something like this is the wattle, the symbol of our land, you can stick it in a bottle, you can hold it in your hand or something like that. So <laughs> go and check out the, the Bruce um, sketch if you want to. And the final thing is, and actually I think I forgot to research this. But I remember when I was going through university in conservation biology, there was a big discussion about wattle and actually specifically the name acacia mm -hmm. as a genus name in Australia. Because this is the um, the the old-fashioned like naming system, the binomial nomenclature that you should choose this genus name and a species name and nothing else should have it in the world. It should be like very scientific and specific. Um, and if you find out that things that are in the same genus are actually not closely related, um, you should split them into separate genuses. That's that's what's happening a lot all over the world as people do DNA tests and realize that things mm -hmm. that they thought were related were actually just like kind of similar looking and not genetically related. So this is problematic because Australia has like, as I said, something like 600 wattle species, but there's also acacia plants in Africa. And you might know of these as these big um, plants with thorns that the, the giraffes eat. Uh -huh. So they're, they're quite famous. And those African species got the name first. So by the rules of the nomenclature, they should get to keep the name. But there's way more species in Australia. As I said, 600 and only a handful in Africa. So during my time in uni, there was this debate of whether Australia would get to like win the fight for acacia and all of ours would say acacia or whether it would actually like revert to um, the African species and we would have to like rename all of, that, of ours. And again, I was too lazy to look this up, but I think we won, I think. <laughs> Which is like, yeah. we won in a very unfair fight. I think now the Australian species are acacias and the ones in Africa, which are not really related, have to have a new name in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just looking it up. Um, I know that in, in 2005 was when the discussion was, uh, or when, um, was it when the decision was made? 
because it's also the other date at uh, 2011 at the International Botanical Congress in Melbourne. Um, yeah, I think that's it because it was they were just discussing it at the start of my university time, so that would be like yeah. 2006, 7, 8, that kind of time. Yeah, but it doesn't say what the African um, genus was then used, uh, which which name that's they the had thing, to adopt. I was then I did look at one stage on the internet for theirs, but it was like still acacia, so I'm not sure what's actually happened as far as... Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Golden Wattle. It is beautiful. If you see it, go and smell it. Yeah, and uh, when you search for it, make sure that you write in wattle plant, because otherwise you'll find the wattle, which is the fleshy bits that hanging off birds' faces, which, for <laughs> example, for um, a cock, there's like the red bits under the, the beak and the, the sort of red... Um, uh, what's the word now in in German? Yeah, the wattle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, the red wattle. Uh, it reminds me of this haircut, a mohawk, uh, like the red mohawk. Uh, and it's just I, I was confused. Like it was a different indigenous group um, that we use in Germany for for that hairstyle. If you search golden wattle, you'll come to acacia pycnanthus. Yeah. So that's the right one. Yeah. And actually, I do say I love the smell, but I made the German smell it when we're in the botanical garden, and Yoram was clearly unamused, and his wife actually just said, no, this is not good. <laughs> so, <laughs> it might be one of these, like, I mean, Yoram was being, like, polite and was like, mm, mm-hmm. No, I, and to then, be honest, like, I didn't, I didn't smell like, much, no. but I also, like, I have ter- terrible smell. Um, it is lovely and perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll believe you. I th- it's like a blind person <laughs> who hears the description of a, of a plant um, ha- just has to believe for me it's the same with smells I just have I to believe I think it's you. also no it's just one of those things where it's nostalgia is like 99% of the smell that I'm smelling yeah, and probably when they grow in larger bunches then they smell more intensely and then you remind you remember this like the smell of a bigger area where they grow um, just from this little bit and for me like I couldn't really make out what makes this distinct smell. Oh, sorry. I smelled it once when I was young and I had all of my senses still active. <laughs> Virile is the wrong word. I don't know. Fleshy? <laughs> Whatever. Fleshy senses. All right. <laughs> I had such fleshy senses, especially my sight. Uh, next, next segment, maybe. <laughs> Diversity in the class. Science. Yes, it's my turn to talk about. Uh, how did you do? You always put it a non-why, non-white um, person. Of non-why male. Non-why male. No. Yeah, I mean it's like there's somebody who has any diversity, uh, and we use the term "why male" because white male is not necessarily correct. It's just whatever is the dominant, whatever is the like status quo in your country. If you're in China, a white male is not going to be the Caucasian. The power yeah. In, yeah. So, why male is what we're using right now. I picked... Um, Correct us. <laughs> Complain. <laughs> Call no, in. No, don't, Fight don't. us. See if we can. <laughs> Fight your own. No, See if I no, can. This, this, is, this, will be not, uh, this won't be a fighting episode this time. Like, we had a lot of fight, not fighting, but angry ranting last uh, week. This week, it's all... Yeah. And we don't have any problem with why men. It's just that we know it's just that... I mean... This is what most people know historically. So, when you think of scientists, especially... You have a lot of famous scientists you can think of, and it's hard to even think of a European woman, let alone anybody from any other culture or background. Yeah. Um, so I picked a European woman for my um, segment this, uh, <laughs> this week. We uh, haven't a lot of European women. We have to move out of Europe, Yoram. Uh, We're like the Nobel Prize for literature. I picked people. I already picked people from the African continent. Um, and I actually want to look up... Um, 
some I'm like I, I, my next goal to to research is um, researchers of India because I know that India has a very active research scene it's very important mm -hmm. there also culturally um, and it's something that at least in my narrow world view doesn't take a big space and I want to change that especially in things like crop development as well yeah. like this has been yeah like agriculturally pretty strong but not this week this week I'm st staying close <laughs> to what I know in my little world is it a German? no it's a French this cytologist it's Arlette Nougaret mm -hmm. Nougaret um, uh, yeah but not Nougaret it's not she's not a chocolate bar Arlette Nougaret <laughs> Arlette Nougaret there's a soft D um <laughs> Do you think Nugaret was already a thing when she was growing up? And do you think she got teased? I don't know. She was born in 1930. Um, so I don't know mm -hmm. when uh, Nugaret uh, came, came around. Um, and uh, she. Those are bad times to get born? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although. Although she. No, it was after the war that she. She moved to Paris in, 80, in 48, so after the war. Um, mm hmm. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't it w no not uh, very fun times for anyone in Central Europe, but particularly France also suffered a lot from Germans. Sorry for that. It's really we are terrible people. I don't think you have to actively uh, no, apologize every time you mention the word. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel <laughs> it's a completely different topic. Let's not discuss this right now. <laughs> I just it's uh, I feel very. <laughs> It's a complicated the topic. The schooling system is really great at this. Okay, carry on. <laughs> um, so um, she's known for the cytophysiological organization of the angiosperm shoot epi apical meristem um, Whoa, cool. during uh, vegetative and reproductive um, development. And she started uh, researching that. Um, after she moved to Paris, she became a CI CNRS associate researcher. Um, which is a French um, a science organization. Actually, I don't know what the CNRS stands for. Uh, I think the R stands for Recherche, which is research. Um, and the rest, I don't know. I could look it up. I won't right now. <laughs> so she created then after having her doctorate in uh, in 61, she created her own lab um, where she worked. Sorry, are you reading the Wikipedia page in French? No. Okay. No, no. It's an, Engli it's an English source that I have. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm trying to find her, and she only has a French wiki. Yeah, yeah. Um, we put a link in the show notes. Um, there is actually learn French, read the show no, notes. No, no. It's it's in English. It's an English source that I'm citing here now. It's from uh, ASPB.org. Um, they have a couple of biographies of uh, women pioneers in plant science, and that's why I also found her. So she started her own lab in 61 uh, um, and worked on experimental cytology and plant morphogenesis, which leads then to the work on the angiosperm shoot apical meristem uh, work. And the the interesting thing about um, about her is that she, although she con uh, was confronted by very serious health problems at different times in her life, um, she still continued working. Um, she she pushed it further, and she actually was uh, hospitalized and uh, was close to being blind, and still pushed for further and wrote uh, 146 um, papers, so research paper and review papers. So 
um, if I imagine like how hard it is for me to just finish one academic work, I'm quite <laughs> impressed by, uh, by, by her. How's your thesis going? Yeah. It's actually going forward. It's something we can discuss later during maybe the fun <laughs> part stuff, but it's actually moving for, for, uh, for, uh, further. Um, yeah, and she continued to work, although she had these serious health problems um, until 1991, um, where she retired. And uh, actually, I don't know. Um, I think she might still be alive because it doesn't say here in the in the article um, whether she is or isn't. Maybe on the French uh, Wikipedia. The French Wikipedia hasn't killed her yet, so, so she's yeah. So she's alive, still alive, enjoying she, retirement. And she got given some some honor distinction in 2014. Yeah, um, a, a couple uh, actually. She uh, got the Chevalier de la Légion d'honneur um, and then the Officier des Palmes Académiques, and um, she's a member of the Botanical Society of America and the Society of Biology. Um, so. Um, quite an accomplished uh, researcher growing up at in, in terrible times uh, facing lots of serious health problems and still doing a lot of very important research um, do we actually want to say what like angiosperm shoot apical meristem means yeah angiosperms are the flowering plants and the shoot apical meristem is kind of the cluster of cells which are basically the stem cells um so it's like a small little dome-like structure and that's where all of the leaves come from and then later in the life it becomes reproductive and that's where the flowers come from so basically you need that to make everything at the top of the plant yeah yes yeah. so that was her well done arlette and you got it and now we move for for for, for forward. I hear that for this week's fun facts, we're just going to talk about how fun Yoram's thesis writing is going. <laughs> I actually had um, I have now um, as an ag agreement with my wife when. Um, uh, she's working now and I'm taking care of the child so for most days of the week I'm at home on babysitting duty but one day a week I get to work on my thesis um, which is like a day more <laughs> wow it's like a free day a day more <laughs> than what I've done for the last I think um, almost two years now um, it was it was resting it was maturing it was ripening it was like a good wine it needed to be in a dark place away mm -hmm. from oxygen. Do you think it light. got better with age? <laughs> That's the thing that I'm uncovering now while going through my old writing and seeing Did what you also mature in your own way while it was maturing yeah. or it was just doing all of the work? Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, I, I think I was maturing more than it was because I rewrote quite a lot of it so far already. And um, yeah, this, this week I found something interesting in my data set that I wanted to investigate further. And... Mm -hmm. um, Cool. To do that, I had to get my res my my software pipeline working again, which is in in research software always a struggle I find um, because a lot of the software that we're using is written for some some research papers. Um, they develop a new algorithm, but it often is not even released as a 1.0 version. It's like 0 0.2, 0 0.3, um, 0.4. Um, can you just like dumb that down for the non-computer nerds amongst yeah, us? Yeah, it just means like a 1.0 is usually like a stable, finished 
piece of software um, that has a specific thing that it's meant but to it do like and it does it without breaking down. And anything that starts with a zero uh, before the point um, means that it's still working prog progress, that it's not there yet and often means that it will still get a lot of updates until it becomes a stable version. But this is just like um, code code for R, right? No, no. This is the this is the software that I used to um, analyze my data sets. So I did some mass spectrometry, and then I visualized this um, using a tool called Nova, where you can then plot um, the data in and as heat maps and as specific types of charts and so on. So I first had to like reinstall this piece of software. Um, then I had to install R as well, get my old R code running, understand again what I was doing there. And also in R, you have the beautiful thing that not only like the main program has a version, all of the packages, so all of the parts that you use for your code mm. has versions. And they change often quite a bit, um, like they deprecate um, code uh, during like a later version. So you you have to pick like the sweet spot of versions, the one where it's already included and working, mm -hmm. but not the one where they already deprecated the code because then <laughs> your two-year-old code won't work anymore. But I managed everything. I got it working and it was actually quite fun. Um, and I'm still admiring how elegant code can be because I wrote some code for visual, uh, for plotting things and if you ever plotted something in Excel and then wanted to plot this again and again and again um, you probably were close to killing yourself and in R it's just uh, once you have the code figured out which can be hard then it's just like clicking a button saying run the code and suddenly your folder fills with like 60 plots that are all perfectly formatted exactly yeah. what you want um, I remember doing just the PCAs like you would like be fucking around for ages getting all of your your data in the right format and then at one point you click something and you just get this beautiful like yep. PCA plot and you're like okay I can just I can leave and go home now yep. like my day is done <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, and once I figured all that out, actually, like usually, I spent um, the last weeks when I worked on my thesis just from like in the morning until lunchtime, more or less like three to four hours. Um, but then I got so excited about having all of that figured out, and I could finally like dive deeper again in my data set um, that I actually worked until I think ten in the evening from from morning. Like I took some breaks in between, but I like I worked the entire day just on this thing. Um, and I went through like a very short version of what you often have when you have a research project. So you have this idea, you find to do some preliminary um, assessment and you see it seems to work out what you want to see. Um, but then you have to like have a closer look. And that's when I uh, then had to like install the entire thing and then I could start having a closer look. Um, it was all about uh, Photosystem 2 Biogenesis, which is also not my strong suit. So I also had to like quickly research, um, like f read through a couple of papers to get an idea what's going on. Uh, it's like your entire thesis topic as well. It's not my strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean <laughs> Photosystem 1 is something where I know a lot about, but Photosystem 2 uh, is okay, something okay, I okay. never really read much about especially not the biogenesis because this is the th like it's it's known stuff and i didn't care that much mm. for it um, because it's different from what's happening in photosystem one so i was like ah for later but now i needed it so <laughs> i found i found like a cool paper a good review of the process then i looked at all of the things in my data set and then the closer i looked then like it became from like a very nice story to a complicated story not a negative story mm -hmm. but just a, a bit more complicated story and this is where I left it then messaged a good friend and a researcher and supervisor of mine um, asking for help and this is what I will be doing next week 
getting his help and figuring out what I actually saw there um, to write about it. I think there's a nice footer system to review from Jörg Nicholson. Is that the one you have? Uh, I think he's on it's it. It's like from algae to higher plants or something like No, no, like that's this. not the one that I have. Mine. Oh, I like that one. It has like a, a table at one point which just like shows all of the genes involved in the algae, like in clammy and, and Arabidopsis, yeah. but then like with other... It's quite useful at least. It's a bit old now maybe. Yeah, and also Jörg Nicholson has a strong focus on cyanobacteria and... Um, mm -hmm things are different in cyanobacteria than in higher plants sure but it, it has the links with the original references so if you're looking for any references it's a really good like one-stop yeah. shop to then like go to the the originals if you have to cite them anyway okay so, maybe some other stuff but yeah <laughs> so. but it was like the entire like process that you often have in research like doing a first test looking great doing the actual work looking at the data and thinking oh it's complicated i need help um, and let's see if it turns into a paper, or in my case, a proper thesis, or like a, a chapter in a thesis, Sorry. or if it will turn to not, to be nothing. Um, uh, that's something for the future. So <laughs> did you have some fun stuff? Uh, you are done with your thesis for a while now, so you can't. Yeah, I can't, I can't talk about my thesis. <laughs> um, I have a cat fact, but maybe you have some more facts. And I also, there was something I saw that was kind of cool that was via Plante on Facebook I saw it but it's actually um, from In Defense of Plants which probably all of you who's listening to this already knows about them they're a blog and a podcast and really really great stuff botany focused but really amazing look at different plants um, this one is about catapulting tentacles in a sticky carnivorous plant and it's actually referring some um, a slightly older publication but it's talking about the Pimpernel Sundew um, which is Drosera uh, 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 glanduligera, uh -huh. glanduligera. I guess it has glands, um, and it's just showing the way that this this Drosera it looks like a sun, and each of or like an octopus with many many tentacles, and it shows that like when um, a bug goes on the tentacle, there's kind of this catapulting thing where the tentacle like suddenly like it's sticky, so it's it's holding onto the fly, and then it kind of whips itself and like throws the fly into the the center of the mm. the plant where it can then be eaten. So I think it's kind of a Yarmi thing because you quite like these like moving plants yeah. and these like videos, so you should definitely go and check it out. And anybody else who's into that sort of thing. Go and check it out and just generally look at In Defense of Plants because their their blog is really beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, will, I will have a look. At it. I'm looking forward to this already. I'm not doing this now because I'm afraid I will break the internet um, like other famous people did before me. Mm. <laughs> um, so uh, I have a, a, a short thing. Um, it's uh, a tweet um, that I found it like triggered an interesting thought for me. Um, from the Tannen Subflap. Um, I think I follow them because we talked about some of their research um, in the past. Um, and here the tweet says um, that it's very important to read a lot of papers and go to a lot of seminar talks early on in the career. In particular, it's important um, to attend as many bad talks and read as many badly written papers as possible. And then it goes on here in the, in the thread and it brings up the Anna Karenina principle, um, which mm -hmm. is an actual principle. Have you heard of it? Do you know what it is? I have heard of it from the tweets, honestly. Oh, yeah. I, it's, it's the idea that it's originally about um, all happy families are happy in the same way, but unhappy families have different things that make them miserable. Something yeah, so like the, that. the quote goes from, it's from Leo Tolstoy's book, Anna Karenina, and it says, all happy, uh, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. 
So the and that brings the idea that if you figure out all the things that can go wrong and avoid them, you'll end up with something that's good. In this case, like if all the fam, like if you avoid all the things that make a family unhappy, then you end up being a happy family. Um, and uh, I found this quite interesting here. And then it goes on a little bit in this in this thread how it's um, really helping early career researchers if they look critically look at all of the things that they see and f just reflect if they understood what's going on and if they didn't that they might think like what what was the problem like where the slides too crowded mm -hmm. was the speaker speaking too fast or too slow and all of these things and then just like noting them down and the next time they're giving a talk they can just uh, avoid talking too fast or avoid overfilling yeah, the slides yeah because when you see the idea was that when you see a good talk, it's really hard to say what exactly is making it amazing. But w when you see a bad talk, you can often really quickly pinpoint, oh, I didn't like that speaker. He talked too fast. Oh, I didn't like that speaker. He didn't animate things. Like, this is really, yeah. like, obvious to you because it annoys you. So yeah. then you remember the annoying things. And um, being a smartass, I obviously also replied to it, um, saying that the one concern that I, I have is that when you stay uh, just in your department, you might end up repeating the same mistakes that were done before because you don't actually realize that they were mistakes um like mm -hmm. i've seen that sometimes in researchers and certain certain group leaders sometimes have a specific style and some of their group members repeat that style be it like a bad choice of mm -hmm. colors or um, a bad layout of their slides and so on um, and then somebody else replied to this and says, yeah, that's why it's very important to go to talks in other fields with different cultures and different habits to also learn from them and realize, oh, diversity. slides don't have to be that. Yeah, exactly. Diversity um, uh, also helps you to make uh, better slides and better talks. Um, yeah, that was just mm -hmm. this short story and the Anna Karenina principle. I actually really had this idea that I wanted to add a new segment to our podcast at one one point about the different types of, of cognitive bias that there are. Mm. We should discuss this another time. There's, I saw this really cool infographic which um, tried to cluster all the types of bias like into a, into a hierarchical tree. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but I think this should be a, a podcast. There's like, I don't know, 50 of them. I think this should be a podcast segment where we just discuss this is a kind of bias that you can have. It's called this. We know about this. Yeah. And that people can be more aware of their bias. Something for the books. Um, um, I have a... Yeah. No, say, say it. I, I, you have something I have fun? something before the cat fact. Okay, I have something really quickly to mention. Um, one of my friend's husbands actually put it on his Facebook page. He's also a scientist, but he's a physicist, not a um, plant biologist. He um, linked to a paper which is called On Functional Representations of the Conformal Algebra. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but he pointed out that in the acknowledgments of the paper, the paper is dedicated to the memory of my friend Francis Dolan, who died tragically in 2011. And one of the points of this um, dedication is it says, I am firmly of the conviction that the psychological brutality of the postdoctoral system played a strong underlying role in Francis's death. So this is really a sad situation, but a good reminder that the situation that a lot of scientists are in is very, very stressful. And I wanted to point out that I'm really proud that my institute finally, after many years of discussion, has psychological support. Um, the Gesellschaft, so the Max Planck Society, now has um, actual 
psychologists and even psychiatrists that people can can access to but mental health is a serious part of everybody's like not everybody's life but of life of people in general but there are studies that show that in PhD students and and other scientists it can be particularly hard because of the very stressful working environment so please look after yourself and look after your fellows um yeah. and if anybody needs help seek help yeah um i think this is a good time to put um some i think there's some international like contact points that you can um that we can link, we'll link to them in the show notes um, yeah i think it's a very important point uh mental health is only recently really getting the focus that it deserves and I'm I'm also very happy that uh, there's more and more places that uh, also publicly express that they are now taking this into account like they give them the issue visibility and they also take action on it and there's still a long way to go but I'm really happy that we see more and more of this happening. And I heard a long time ago from another colleague that there are certain things that define stressfulness in a job. And many of these features, which are known stressful stress causes, are present in science. So some examples are um, not having job security, so having short contracts, um, having input not equal to output. So this is very true of experimental um, science where you can do things, but if, if it's just like not going to happen sometimes it just isn't going to happen for biological reasons like the plant doesn't want to like do what you're trying to do and it's also um, further than the, the experiments right it's like the entire idea of grant writing you, you usually write like a multiple of the grants that actually get approved for you where you get your funding from you write multiple of that so you get always more rejection mm -hmm. than approval um yeah, another one is having um, bosses be in stressful situations. And again, because our bosses don't have their own stability, they're very stressed out. And that means um, that they, of course, can put stress on their people. So a lot of these factors are present in science. So I think it's um, a very important thing to think about and to talk about and to actually act on as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, I have... Oh, my one hasn't loaded. I have a cat fact, which I actually have to thank one of my friends, Vanessa. She always puts stuff. We have a, one of these WhatsApp groups, which has like a thousand people in it. And she always sends me cat facts in this group. And this one is particularly suitable for Halloween. So it's from Next Shark. And the title is, there's a terrifying breed of werewolf cats that acts like dogs and cost up to $2,500. Um, and that's pretty much the entirety of the, <laughs> the information of the article, basically, except that it had a lot of photos of these cats. So, I mean, it's basically, um, there is people who have bred these cats. They're called Likoi cats. Um, they have some mutations, which honestly basically make them look like they have the mange, like because they have like shitty patchy fur. Mm which makes them look like a like kind of wiry, like like a, a werewolf. Like it's it's not even like a wolf. It's like a werewolf where it's not full fur cover. It's like, uh -huh. it really looks ill. Like if my cat had that, I would assume it had mites and I would send it to the vet. And then I would probably like, no matter what the vet did, also put it in some sort of like bleach solution or, <laughs> or just put try to set like a small fire to the cat. They look really actually disturbing. <laughs> and I know in the article they've deliberately tried to make them look more spooky, but there's also one where they try to make them cute. They dress them like in a little like kind of bow tie situation and it still looks disgusting. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first cats I've ever seen where I don't want it. That's what I'm gonna say. Oh like, that must be bad. I'm not that into those Rex cats, but like I'm just gonna send Yoram the yeah the thing so he can have a look at how ugly they are. They just they just look off, and I understand that people are like, "Oh, it's a fancy cat." Did you get it? I got I got it. Yeah. No. It's just a bit off looking. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's yeah. I also I wouldn't want it. 
and it's also one of these breeding things which like I don't know they say that there's the appearance is not caused by like some disease or anything like that they did all these DNA tests blah 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 and they also checked like their heart and like if they're healthy but um yeah I, I don't know yeah, yeah doesn't seem necessary doesn't seem nice yeah breeding breeding animals breeding animals for race traits is something that I really especially for pets I, I, I just breeding plants for race traits on the other hand Yes, we're pro. They don't suffer. They don't have like a nervous system. These these animals suffer. I mean, I don't know if like yeah, if you say if they if they're healthy, then at least that's going on for them. But still, like the fur of them for them. I mean, if they see a mirror, ever they're gonna yeah, they get they're gonna suffer if they see a mirror. It's not a pretty cat. (laughs) Like I think most cats are fairly confident about how they look. Like they know they're hot, and this cat is gonna look at itself and be like. Like, I want to know, but, like... I wonder how other cats react to them. If other cats think that these are sick cats and therefore avoid them. Almost definitely, uh, right? On the other hand, like, cats avoid each other all the time. Um, like, my cats hate other cats, independent of the looks. Yeah, but you raised your cats to be assholes. Yeah, they're racist cats. Not even... <laughs> is racist even the right work word? Yeah, I guess... Yeah, I guess they're, they're just, just better than others. Um, I mean, they're very cute, uh, but I don't think they are superior cats, but they think that. But on the other hand, then again, I think all cats think that they're superior. I. But these ones, that's the thing, like all cats do, but these ones, they just can never think that. Like, how can they re- be a real cat if they if they have to live with the knowledge that they look like this? <laughs> yes. They will never like truly, f- like they won't ever feel that arrogance that all other cats feel. Like they also say they act like dogs, and maybe it's because they just like they, like the they know their shit. Yeah. They act that they like the arrogance because they just can't. They just like can't manage like the <laughs> the self confidence to have the true cat arrogance, which is kind of sad for them. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. I think um, a cat without a healthy arrogance uh, is a dog essentially, um, and I find dogs inferior. <laughs> yes objectively so <laughs> although our twitter right. audience analytics says that i think like 98 percent of our audience has the interest of dogs where i don't know that's why they're following us then <laughs> no that's only because people feel like they have to like dogs otherwise society will shun them yeah. there's like some weird social rule that if you don't like dogs like it's not okay i don't care for dogs um Okay, with that, let's let's end. Uh, this is a shorter episode, <laughs> but I think that's good for a change. Um, also, I'm tired. Yeah, same. I'm really looking forward to sleeping. Uh, but before we sleep and before you sleep, uh, follow us on all of the social media. Uh, on Instagram and on Facebook, you can talk to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. And on Twitter, you can talk to me unless Tegan is taking over because I'm too bad at this <laughs> um, and not uh, posting anything for a while. Then you can sometimes talk to Tegan there as well. And we are at Plants Pipettes. I try to sign with like a T nowadays just so it's not too confusing when you're like, did I write this? I don't remember that I wrote yeah, this. Yeah, it's still sometimes confusing. But also that's because I'm a very simple mind. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, what else do we have to say? Please read our blog. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com. Um, we talk about different 
research that came out in the plant field we talk about basic plant things we have like beautiful um, pictures drawn by Yoram you should go and see and them and yours are also yeah. very nice we have a new uh, a photo post that went up this week and we have some cool we uh, 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 Halloween stuff coming up right and depending on when we publish this in relation to when we publish this episode you might no Halloween will be after this okay then look forward to this go to our website and read the Halloween articles that are very extremely good and also please rate us on iTunes with a very extremely uh, good rating there and um, our music is Caravaggio Caravana by Philip oh, Gross um, it's been like 30 episodes and I have no idea <laughs> yeah um, it's a creative <sighs> commons rules I have to say that every single time otherwise I'll get thrown to in, in jail immediately also we're very grateful that we get to use his yeah, music um, so I quite like we it we want to give the artist his credit yeah. um, okay then think that's it for this week goodbye bye